It's Monday, June 1st. Welcome to Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill. With me today, Mr. Jason Moser. Good to see you, my friend. Good to see you, too. Happy June. June. Year's just flying right by, isn't it? I tell you. Oh yeah, yeah. This year's just just flying by. That's exactly what this year's doing. It's like time flies when you're having fun, and no wonder it feels like this year just will never ever end. Because I don't know about you, but this this pandemic stuff, I I don't find it all that fun. No, no. Uh, We're gonna dip into the full mailbag. We're gonna talk about um, M and A activity and new report out today. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on. Um, I gotta say though. um, this is also this is one of those days where it feels, and this happens every once in a great while. This is one of those days where it feels a little bit weird to be talking about the stock market and investing, because over the past few days we've had protests in more than 140 cities across America. Um, the National Guard has been activated in roughly half of the states. Uh, but uh, this morning I was watching CNBC, and one of the people they were talking to um, was Ken Frazier. Uh, Ken Frazier is the CEO of Merck. He is an African-American man. And one of the things he talked about was his upbringing in Philadelphia when when he was a boy and the opportunities that he was exposed to. And then he started talking about the role of business in this environment, not just, you know, put aside the pandemic, because we've, we've talked about the role of business with respect to the pandemic. But he talked about how this is an opportunity for businesses to um, be more active and more proactive, particularly when dealing with the federal government, you know, the business roundtable and creating opportunities for people in the future. And, uh, you know, it was just one of those things that gave me hope. And this was one of those Monday mornings more than usual when I needed a little bit of hope. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for for is as nice as the weather was for us here over the weekend. I mean, obviously, it, it was a bad weekend for a lot of folks, and you know, I I don't think that's anything that is going to clear up anytime soon. But I, I you know, I, I did watch that clip, and the one thing I thought he made a, a really good point in that you know, at some point after all of the the riots die down, the looting dies down, and and things get back somewhat to a peaceful state you know the biggest problem is typically when things like this happen then everybody just kind of goes back to the status quo they just go back to the way things were they're like okay finally that storm blew over and and that's that misses the point right i mean he he was exactly right in that you know these are the types of occasions where people businesses governments need to be more proactive i mean clearly we're in a different world today than we were 100 years ago but but there's still a lot of work to be done, and I mean it just it, to to see to see what's going on is really heartbreaking because I mean you know I mean, I, I I you know I, I we could go on for an hour talking about this I mean I, I despise racism I hate seeing this kind of stuff and and you know to know that we have a country that's still so polarized in that way it re- really it's frustrating as hell to be honest with you and and. You know, he's right. Once everything dies down and we get back to normal, that's not the time just to kind of get back to work and think, okay, finally that's over. I mean, business really has the ability to get up there and create the conversation that the entire country can have, right? I could get out there and I could say something, but no one's going to really hear it. And probably most people don't care. 
But if you get companies and leaders who have a national stage to get up there and continue to keep this at the forefront of people's minds and the forefront of the discussion here in this country, I mean, I think that's going to be the more powerful force for change. So I, I, you know, I really did enjoy hearing his perspective because I think he was, I think he was spot on. We are a business show, so um, with that, let's let's get to some of the business of the day, and we'll start with um, Coty. Um, shares of Coty up nearly 20% today. Uh, the chairman of the company, Peter Harf, is going to be the new CEO. This is the fourth CEO Cody <laughs> has had in four years. What is going on at this cosmetics company that they can't keep a CEO? Well, I mean, this is the hurts of cosmetics, right? I mean, that's kind of what we were talking about before before we uh, started taping. I mean, this is the, this is exactly the same sort of situation we saw with Hertz. Now, I'm not saying that Cody is going to be filing for bankruptcy, but uh, you know, they they were definitely in a they were in a defensive position and and I think this is something that hopefully will will get their company turned back in the right direction. But I mean, you can see, I mean, with the Cody's business model, they have, there's a lot of moving parts. I mean, it's a cosmetics company, but it's beauty cosmetics, it's hair products and you know, all of that stuff, fragrances. And so they, it, there are a lot of moving parts in regard to that portfolio of brands and I think they've had a tough time operating the business on any, any real consistent vision because of the point you just made. I mean, this is the fourth CEO in as many years. And you know, if you if you don't have that consistent vision with leadership and the ability to see around corners and take businesses into different directions uh, or new directions when they when they need to be taken, I mean, they they just don't make any progress. And when you look at Cody's financials, I mean, it's abundantly clear that they've just not been making any progress. Um, top line sales down. I mean, they they are not cash flow positive. I mean, it's been quite a, quite a few years since they've been cash flow positive. Um, you know, I mean, the, the stock has not been a good performer, and and so it's going to be interesting to see Peter Harf joining uh, the CEO office. Now, Peter Harf has an interesting history with the business. Uh, he, I mean, the, the Cody that we know today, he founded back in 1990. So I think from that perspective, it's encouraging to see him getting in there. He's also a founder and managing partner of JAB, which we've talked about JAB Holdings before. I mean, that's that's the the firm that owns businesses like Panera and Krispy Kreme and Pete's. So I mean, you you could argue that Peter Harf is exactly the guy that needs to be taking over the the this role here. And and I think that along with the the deal with KKR that's going to give them uh, liquidity in a time where they need it most, and it's going to help clean their plate a little bit of some distractions. I think primarily in the hair business, the hairstyle business. Uh, it, you know, maybe it gives them a chance to get back to brass tacks and try to steer this company forward because it, it is a challenging space, and we've seen with Ulta what Mary Dillon has done over there since 2013. I mean, Ulta is a formidable competitor in this space. Clearly, a bigger uh, company than than Cody is today. So, I, you know, they had their work cut out for them, but I think they probably got the right person uh, in in the in the you know, executive suite at least to to try to get this turnaround started. And if they don't, I guess we can expect a, a new CEO in about a year. <laughs> Let's give him more than a year, right? Let's let's at least give him a chance to try to execute the vision. But I mean, you know, this this deal that they got with KKR. I mean, I think they what was a one billion dollar convertible preferred share offering. The coupon on that was nine percent. 
And if you think about the interest rate environment that we're in today, I mean, that 9%, that reeks of like cruise liners, right? I mean, that's that's a business that is in a little bit of a desperate state. And, and so, you know, we are going to have to give them a little bit of room there to try to get this thing turned around. But, you know, I mean, the other thing about this business, and you when you look at the financials of businesses, you know, we always talk about adjusted EBITDA and one-time charges, and if you adjust for this or that. A lot of times, you'll see companies where they're talking about restructuring. And, and, you know, turning the business around. And, and Cody is certainly one of those businesses now where they're focusing on a turnaround. But if you go look at their financials and, and you look at actually the, um, the one-time charges, the restructuring charges that they've taken over the past five years, it's well over a billion dollars. And it's every year. So, it's like they're in this constant state of restructuring. And you go back to that CEO issue with with four four CEOs over that stretch. I mean, it starts to make more sense. Even they've just had no consistency in vision or strategy, and that has played out uh, in every facet of the business in unfortunately a bad way to this point. Bain and Company issued a report today on mergers and acquisition activity in the tech space, and uh, not surprisingly, M and A activity down more than forty percent in the first quarter. The striking thing to me is that Bain and Company basically said this is going to be a V-shaped recovery for M&A in the tech industry. <laughs> that the second half of 2020 is going to see a serious bounce back. Do you think that's likely? Uh, likely, I, you know. To me, that seems a bit optimistic. I mean, maybe maybe U-shaped is is where we can kind of meet in the middle. I don't know. I mean, I I kind of feel like U is is the better letter that comes into play here. Maybe it'll be a little bit more gradual. But I mean, you also have to remember there's there's a lot there's a lot we still don't know. I mean, the pandemic is still a pandemic. I mean, it sounds like things are starting to improve, but we, you know, don't really know for sure until the winter months come back around to to really see how things are shaking out. So for me, V is probably a little bit optimistic, but I, I do think I do think they're right in that we we have a lot of companies out there right now, a lot of big companies with a lot of dry powder, a lot of capital resources. And I mean, we were talking about Berkshire Hathaway a month ago and how odd it was that they didn't really put any of that money to work. Um, and, and I don't know necessarily exactly why that was, but but my my thinking was there's a couple of reasons. Maybe Buffett's being a little bit conservative given the exposure to insurance uh, that Berkshire Hathaway bears. And also, maybe he thinks this is going to be a little bit more of a progressive uh, style recovery as opposed to a V style. Um, You've got a lot of little businesses out there right now, startups and, and small businesses that are in. We we've seen these these publicly traded companies talking about cash conservation mode, right? They're figuring out every way they can to get as much capital in their savings account as they can, so they can try to weather the rest of this year. A lot of these little businesses they don't have necessarily that same luxury, and and so you know it it may be. That you see Facebook and Microsoft and Apple companies like that jump out there and really start putting some of that money to work. To be sure, I mean we've seen Facebook and, and Apple have definitely made a couple of little acquisitions here recently. Facebook just bought Giphy or Jiffy. I mean I would imagine you probably say Giphy or you start getting confused with peanut butter. But they bought Giphy for four hundred million dollars, and that, and Giphy was a business that didn't make any money. And and then Apple also did just confirm they bought. A uh, virtual reality company called NextVR, which they specialize in recording uh, live events like s- concerts and sports uh, to be experienced in v- VR. And the, the 
terms of the deal. I thought it was around $100 million. Uh, and that'll be really interesting just given the uh, the lack of live events that we're going to have here, in, at least in the near term, to see how companies try to you know build out new immersive type experiences. So, we've seen these businesses starting to test the waters a little bit. I, I, I think they'll continue to do that because when these businesses get this big and they have the resources that they have on their balance sheets, we start to judge them according to that, right? I mean, we want to see them as effective capital allocators. And if they're just leaving that money sitting there, I mean, that's that's generating really no return whatsoever. So, so it does behoove them to be testing the waters for sure. And my bet is they'll find some really good deals because there are going to be some companies out there that are going to be a little bit uh, in, a, in a little bit of a pinch until things start to improve. And we just don't know when that's going to be. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's going to be the interesting thing to see in terms of the push and pull of this, because I, I don't remember who said it, but early in the pandemic, I remember, uh, it might have been David Faber on CNBC basically saying, in fact, it was Faber, now that I think of it, uh, Faber was talking about reaching out to his contacts uh, in the M&A industry, and they were basically saying, no deals are going to get done. And part of the reason was... If you're, if I'm going to buy your company, I want to sit down with you in person. I want to sit across from you at a conference table, or maybe we go out to dinner or something like that. And it, we're in this environment where that's not happening. So, you know, the the larger point he was making was it's harder to get these types of deals done when you can't sit in the same room with someone. Having said that, I mean, you make a great point. There are a lot of these smaller companies that are going to be so much more desperate in the next, say, three to six months than they were three to six months ago. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I, I do think there's a good point there in regard to face-to-face. I mean, that that is something that um, no amount of technology can 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 really uh, satisfy that same dynamic as, as getting in the same room with someone. Um, I, I, I feel like that, I feel like we're kind of getting back to where we're going to be able to do that a little bit more. But But yeah, I mean, no doubt. It, it has been a trying time for everyone. It just it really goes to show you. We always talk about the strong are the ones that come out of uh, stretches of time like this even stronger, and it's very understandable why that's the case. And and you know there can be companies out there that maybe they didn't have, you know, becoming acquired in their game plan. Maybe that wasn't really a part of their exit strategy. But I'd be willing to bet they probably weren't counting on a pandemic either, right? I mean, going forward. I know as I, as an investor, will definitely be acknowledging that risk. I mean, it's something that you have to acknowledge because we're living through it right now and we're seeing how dramatic of an impact it's having. Um, so, yeah, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be a fascinating back half of the year for sure. Well, and you just reminded me, one more data point we're going to get from all of these businesses that we're watching uh, that we'll be able to sort of file away, particularly with respect to the management teams, is how quickly were they able to adjust? Not yeah. the ones, because we've talked about the businesses that made the investments in e-commerce ahead of time. You know, the Williams-Sonomas, you know, just to pick a recent example. Uh, not talking about those. I'm talking about the ones, Brian Cornell at Target, you know, uh, the folks at Walmart basically saying, okay, this is the new reality. How quickly can we get this up and running? And it's yeah. that, you know, that speed of innovation that uh, Nadella talked about and, and how much they've innovated in such a short amount of time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our email address is marketfoolery at fool.com. Question from Joe Franco. 
who writes, my partner and I are trying to settle a slight difference of opinion. In general, <laughs> we both subscribe to the maxim of time in the market versus timing the market. But she is a much better student of your foolish principles, so I wonder if she might be right. Let's say I've realized a modest return on a stock I've held for less than a year. I believe in the stock long term, but I do still expect short-term headwinds and an overall market correction that will drive the share price down in the near term. Would it be an error to try and sell my stock now, actualize some of those gains, and then buy back at an equal or greater position once that expected share price dip happens? Or do I just hold fast, weather the storm, and maybe even increase my position when it's at an even better value? Uh, to be clear, my partner is advocating for the latter. <laughs> if you're telling me not to take those gains for any reason other than you're not clairvoyant, can you explain the rationale? Is it deferred tax liability or something else that I can't quite grasp? Thank you so much. First of all, Joe, great question. Mm -hmm. Great that you and your partner are doing this together and you can have these types of conversations because a lot of people don't really talk about money and investing with their partner. So that's great that you're doing that. Uh, secondly, you're not clairvoyant, Joe. <laughs> that's number one on my list. Now, I have other reasons <laughs> on my list, but number one on my list, Joe, is you're not clairvoyant. You know no. that. If you were clairvoyant, you wouldn't have written this email. Precisely. Um, I mean, I, 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 that is a good question. I, I do appreciate it. It's one that, um, I, you know, I, I hear it more often than I really wish I did because, uh, you know, our job is, is to continue to, to espouse that, that long-term mentality. And in hindsight, what you're saying, Joe, it, in hindsight, it seems easy, right? I mean, oh, you know, there's going to be something that makes the stock go down and then you can, but yeah, you know it and you said it, timing the market is, is it's, it's not easy to do. Typically, it's just a coin flip. And, and, and the one thing you don't ever want to do is, is become overconfident in your ability. Because as soon as you become overconfident in your ability, the market has a very, very uh, quick way of correcting you. And, and, and then it makes you remember why you didn't do that in the first place. Um, I, I, so, yeah, beyond not being able to predict what the market is going to do, the machinations, you just can't predict that. You flip a coin, might as well. Um, to me, it's it's the tax obligations. Now, I mean, there is there is a short-term uh, capital gains tax, there's a long-term capital gain tax. So, whenever you buy shares in a company, you're, you know, you're buying shares and the idea is to see those shares go up in value. Eventually, you you sell them and you, you realize those gains and you do something with those gains. But the thing is, with short-term capital gains, we're talking one year or less. If you buy a stock and then sell it within that one year or less time frame, you're going to be subjected to short-term capital gains taxes, assuming that the stock went up and you made, you made money on it. And so, short-term capital gains taxes are, are they're, they're taxed at a higher rate than long-term capital gains tax. Long-term capital gains tax is if you buy shares of a stock and then you hold on to them for more than one year. So, if you sell them after that one year, then it's a long-term capital gains tax event, assuming that you made money on that stock. And, and that's a considerably lower 
uh, tax rate. And, and so I think just from the taxes alone, and I listen, I've seen, I've seen how short-term capital gains taxes can eat into your tax bill. I mean, it really, it can really have a profound effect if, if you do a lot of trading. And I think that's another reason why day trading is so difficult um, to do sustainably, uh, because you're always going to be subjected to that frictional cost of, of uh, you know, the short-term capital gains tax. And, and so, for me, the tax, the tax situation alone is, is one for me to just say, you know, I don't, I don't really want to get into that buy and sell with, within a year. Um, now, I mean, if you buy a company and you, you know, then the company plummets and you realize six months later, you shouldn't have done that. You can sell that. And that loss is something you can use to help offset some gains. Uh, but yeah, there are definitely some tax implications there that I think are, are worth considering. And, and, and those tax implications are enough for me to, to just focus on making sure I own my stocks for more than a year. Wasn't it Warren Buffett who talked about capital gains taxes uh, in sort of like a gradated way? Like I, I think one time he suggested, you know, short-term capital gains taxes should actually be a hundred percent. You know, just making this example yeah. of holding stocks for the long term, and then after the first year, it you know it's lower, and then uh, I'm not going to get the numbers right, but it was something like in the first in less than a year you sell the stock 100%. That's what you're taxed at. And then over time it eventually gets down to zero. It's yeah. uh, maybe it's like 10 years. Like you hold it for 10 years or more, your capital gains tax is zero. I mean that would be awesome. I don't I don't suspect that will ever happen because it actually requires Congress to do some work and, and actually negotiate and be productive and they're just not very good at doing that. Um, and the day the day traders lobby would be up in arms. <laughs> exactly. I mean exact you're you're always pissing somebody off. And in this case that's the that's the the group that you're that you're uh, frustrating there. So yeah, I, I don't suspect that will ever happen, but I do think I, that would be a really that would be such a great Change is just say if you hold this stock for five years or longer, then your capital gains tax is zero. I mean that just changes the calculus altogether for so many people. I mean, you know, your your money managers and your big funds and whatnot that are buying and selling more frequently, they're going to be the ones that have to have to deal with those ramifications. Individuals like us, that's one of our biggest advantages in investing is time. We can actually take as much time as we want because we're really just looking out for our own self interest when we're investing. Right? I'm not managing money for a big group of people who bought into my fund, I'm managing money for myself. And so there is that self-interest there. And and that, you know, that means I can I have I call the shots as far as how long I've got. And you know, I mean I think it just takes a couple of times trying to trade. I mean if you take a couple of times, just try to do it. And and you'll probably get one right, but then you're gonna get a couple of them wrong. And and you're gonna start to figure, okay, this doesn't really make a lot of sense. And you just kind of give up on it. And and you know, I I think that for me was the eye opener when I was a younger uh, investor, just trying that a couple times and just realizing, man, this just sucks. This is not easy. This isn't any fun. I don't like doing this. It, you know, I, I look at some of the stocks that I have now. So, I mean, I see these. I've got, you know, when you get a ten bagger, you know what you have to do to get a ten bagger? You got to hang on to it. You know, you got to hang on to it. And so, and so that's uh, that's that's the only way to do it in my book. And certainly, that that tax structure incentivizes. Um, longer term holding periods, and, and so I, I, I would I would look at it that way. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and the Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's going to do it for this edition of Market Foolery. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow.